Our sermon text this morning comes from the book of 2 Kings, the 5th chapter, verses 1 through 15. I'll be reading these now for us. If you've got a Bible, feel free to follow along. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to you with, to the king of Israel. So Naaman went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I a god to kill and make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elijah, the man of God, heard the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let Naaman come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots, and he stood at Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and call upon the name of the Lord God, and wave his hand all over the place, and cure the leper. Are not the Abina and Farpar rivers in Damascus, Syria, better than all of these waters in Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. But his servants came near to him and said, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said, Wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, and he, he and all of his company. And he came and he stood before him, and he said, Behold, I know now that there is no God in all the earth but the one in Israel. So accept a present from me, which, of course, the prophet refused to do. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, through the written word and now the spoken word, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Send your spirit that your thoughts, which are thoughts that can be very difficult for us to think, may take root in our hearts and minds as well as in our character and our behavior. Amen. A good Advent to all and to all a good Advent. As we move into the first season of the church calendar, one which takes us to the doorstep of Christmas, we're going to be returning to the book of Kings. In fact, this time to the latter portion, 2 Kings. And let me briefly speak before we make a start on the title of this series. It's called Shadowlands. It's picking up where we left off in the summer. Why are we calling it Shadowlands? In the New Testament, in the book of Colossians, in the second chapter, St. Paul is reflecting on the Old Testament. And guess what he says? He says that a lot of the stuff in the Old Testament is a shadow of things to come, for the substance belongs to Christ. That means that what Kings is talking about, First and Second Kings, participates in the major message of the entire Bible. All the books of the Bible, you see, share a major common theme. It's a message about how God relates to humans. And it comes to fruition in Jesus Christ. 
Now for us, that means that the testimonies we read in the books of Kings can be likened to sparks that leap out before the fire that is Jesus Christ. They anticipate His reality. They share in His reality. And that is why it is more than fitting to turn to 2 Kings during this season of Advent. So without further ado, let's make a start on today's passage, which was just read. Now on the surface, the text today looks like a medical miracle report. A guy has a skin blight. There's no dermatologist in his country, so he travels, he finds a bard, and he gets himself healed. And it doesn't even cost anything because they've got universal coverage in Israel. <laughs> Simple and straightforward, eh? Wrong. Wrong. So much more going on in this story. This is a conversion report. It's about a tremendous work, not only of outer, but also inner healing. If you look at verse 1, you'll notice that God's sovereignty over Naaman's life and times is simply declared. The Lord gave Naaman victory, right? That's why Naaman has enjoyed military success. Not because of the gods of Syria, because of the God of Israel, even though Naaman doesn't know who he is yet. And that is precisely what changes by the time we get to verse 15, when Naaman wakes up to the reality that there is one God. One God. And he knows Naaman. And he wants Naaman to know and enjoy him. Folks, this is what God, in fact, wants for every human being. And that's why we have this story. It's a report that helps us understand how God works, how God works through sticky situations and in spite of our own stubbornness to draw people to himself. And as I hope to demonstrate in the next little while, while Naaman is an ancient man, a man from many thousands of years ago, we've got a lot in common. And God, well, let's just say he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, always breaking in to heal and save. That is the business of heaven. This is what's going on in 2 Kings 5, and I think what we encounter there is tremendously relevant for us, 21st century Vancouverites. There are patterns here that continue to play out. As we explore how Naaman is made well, not just physically, but also spiritually, and those two ultimately go hand in hand, there are at least four things we need to attend. Becoming aware, becoming oriented, being emptied, and being filled. Becoming aware, becoming oriented, being emptied, and being filled. Becoming aware. Look with me at verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, a great man with his master in high, high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a man mighty in valor, but he was a leper. Naaman is a person of extraordinary achievement, a person of influence and status. His name literally means charming and pleasant. This guy knows how to win friends and influence people. He's not only a decorated field marshal, but he's probably a counselor to the king in matters of statecraft. And it's not a stretch to say, especially based on the king's age, which is reported later in this chapter, that Naaman is likely the power behind the Syrian throne. That's how verse 1 begins. But by the end of its 40-plus words, a shadow is cast. Naaman was a leper. This man whose life leaves nothing to be desired is tainted by a horrendous, isolating and unstoppable disease. Look at verse 7. When the king of Israel learns about Naaman's skin affliction, he, he tore his clothes and he said, Am I God to kill and make alive that a man sends me to cure another of leprosy? The rabbis at the time of Jesus used to say that the cure of a leper is equivalent to the resurrection of the dead. In other words, they didn't expect it to happen. Neither does Israel's king. Naaman has a serious problem, and it is spoiling his life. 
shattering his dreams and everything that he's achieved. I dare say that we can relate. On the one hand, ours is an age of great achievement. We've made tremendous strides in housing, in education, in culture, medicine, and science, and the list goes on. On one level, everything seems just dandy. But nobody ever says that because there's always a but. And in this world, there always will be something to spoil our designer lives. Sickness, financial loss, families ripped apart, dysfunctional attachment, acute anxiety that paralyzes you. And we can add to this list insecurity about the future. Will the world last? Will the environment last? Will our prosperity last? Our water, our atmosphere. At the present moment, we know this all too well. There's a lot of felt vulnerability these days. It stands behind both Brexit and the recent outcome of the U.S. election. Social commentator Rusty Reno puts it like this. Our economic, intellectual, and political elites feel very much at home in today's system. They flourish in the global economy, and they're comfortable with multiculturalist ideology. But by contrast, many ordinary people feel less and less at home. This homelessness stands behind the rise of recent populist movements. For many people, things seem to be coming apart. The lives that we've imagined and longed for are vaporizing. Things are out of control. They're being ruined. There are flies in the ointment. So too with Naaman here in 2 Kings. We can relate. Verse 1 succinctly reports Naaman becoming profoundly and painfully aware that his life is being spoiled and there's nothing he can do about it. And it is this awareness that sets the stage for an encounter with God. That's where the passage is going. Naaman's unstoppable affliction creates a certain receptivity in him. In part, it's his illness, his felt powerlessness that turns him into a seeker. That's how it often is. That's why many times people turn to spirituality in moments of crisis. C.S. Lewis pins the tail on this donkey when he writes this, Pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers in our pleasures, he speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. By itself, however, becoming aware of our limitations, the experience of loss and pain is not sufficient for a connection with God, not by itself. Look now at verses 2 and 3. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Comes to this. On their own, our pain and our problems are not enough to lead us to God. We know this. We all know people who have encountered or are encountering right now great pain and suffering and are in no way coming close to God through it. It's not enough by itself. That is because humans of our own accord will never just end up at God. By ourselves, we are incapable of searching for and finding God. In actuality, according to the Bible, we can only respond to God searching for us. Divine revelation does not refer to our finding God. It's the way that we name our discovery that God has discovered us. We must become oriented to God. We must be told about God by God himself or by one of his many witnesses. For yours truly, it happened anew about 12 years ago when a professor gave me a cassette tape with a sermon called Christ Our Wonderful Counselor. I still remember it. That's what happens for Naaman here in verses 2 and 3. There's a little girl, an Israelite girl, working in his home. 
She's God's witness to Naaman at this moment. And by her suggestion, and only by it, does Naaman learn of a source of help. Apart from this girl, girl's timid but sublime suggestion, Naaman would not have ended up healed. He doesn't just stumble onto his remedy, right? It's given. It's announced. And so we see that in the end, it's great need plus good news that makes someone a seeker. Not just great need, but great need plus good news. That's the perennial pattern. Now, how does that hit home for us? Just a little application here before we move on. In the first place, it means that to be a Christian is to be someone who in a world of crises is called to speak in faith of love and hope and saving power. That will not always be easy. Look at the girl's circumstances. Verse 2, right? She's basically a POW. That reminds us that there will sometimes be personal cost involved in this cost to families, but we endure that cost because it's part of saving others, just as the little girl has a hand in Naaman's salvation. When I was reflecting on this truth last week, I remembered something I heard a few months back, a story about a man called Johann Dober and David Nitschmann. They were 18th century Germans who wanted to start a mission in the Caribbean on the island of St. Thomas to the slaves who worked there. They requested permission to go and start a church in a, in a missional community, and they were denied. They were banned from going to the island, so they sold themselves into slavery in order to go and have a mission to these men and women on those plantations. And allegedly, as their ships set sail from Europe, they called out to their families, waving goodbye to them on the shore, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Those men and women. Christians follow a Lord who hung on a cross to save the world. We expect to be, can we expect our bearing witness to him to be devoid of sacrifice and difficulty? I think not. When you feel discouraged, just remember Johann and David. Let's move on. I want to now consider the necessity of being emptied. This too is part of coming into a relationship with the living God. A few years ago, I was having some joint pain in this arm. It was really affecting my shuffleboard game, so I decided to go to the doctor. <laughs> and she looked at the arm and she counseled a remedy. While she had me captive in her office, she suggested that we do a more thorough, formal exam because I hadn't had one in about four or five years. So she went ahead, did the typical workup, checking my blood pressure, the heart test, toe flexibility, et cetera, et cetera. And she stepped out of the room to process the data. In about 20 minutes, she came back with a very somber and distressed look on her face. I was so nervous, I lit a cigarette to deal with the anxiety. She said, Roger, Rog, there's an issue with your heart. Gulp. She continued, most people's heart's about this big, but yours is this big. It is enormous. You have an enormous heart. Now, that's a bit tongue-in-cheek, but loosely speaking, something like that happens to Naaman when he gets to Israel. He goes over there looking for a dermatologist, but when he arrives, it becomes very clear that he's got, he needs some other help, right? He doesn't just have a skin problem, an outside problem. He's got an inside problem, too. He's got a heart and an attitude problem. He's carrying a cancer that he doesn't know about. The writers of Kings are very quick and intentional to point this out. They show us that Naaman is a proud man whose identity is built on self-reliance. And you can't be close to God if you're like that. That's no less than what Jesus himself says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, my kingdom is a place for people who are poor in spirit and who are meek. 
those traits are antonyms of pride and self-reliance, which are two peas in a pod, and both of them are in Naaman's life and probably in many of our lives too. Verse 5, the king of Syria said, Go now, and I'll send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman went, and he took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. Bling, bling. Naaman is at the end of his rope, but he's still hanging on to his rope. He didn't just hike over to Israel. He shows up in power and pomp with influence. The silver there equals about 7,500 pounds of silver. The guy has a trailer teeming with treasure. Yes, that was good alliteration. Thank you. <laughs> He's going to use everything that he can get a hold of in this world to try to fix his problem, his influence, his wealth. He's got a letter from the king. And if that doesn't work, well, he's got the key that opens all doors, cash. That's called self-reliance. In our culture, we crave it. Verse 6, Naaman was recommended by the girl to see a prophet. But he didn't go to a prophet. He goes to the king. If you want to get something done, you go to the top. Someone like Naaman has that type of power. Commentators suggest that this action reflects Naaman's ideas about how religion works, right? It's very typical in the ancient Near East, namely that the king is always the boss of the priest and the prophet. They're under his thumb. The religious machinery is under his thumb. Well, Naaman does not know where he is. Things don't work that way in Israel. God is not the living God. He's not beholden to humans. He's not our PA. The king of Israel knows what Naaman doesn't know. That's why he cries out. He can't control God can't control God's prophet. He thinks the whole thing's a scenario to set a trap and cause some sort of international incident. Fasten now on to verses 9 through 11 with me. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and all that treasure, and he stood at the front of Elijah's house. And Elijah sent a messenger out to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. But Naaman was angry. And he went away saying, Behold, I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands and cure the leper. At the invitation of Elijah in verse 8, Naaman gets back in his Lincoln Town car, chauffeured of course, and moves his entourage out to Elijah's little modest hermitage. And he expects Elijah to roller skate out and take his order. That's what Naaman's accustomed to. Based on all he's accomplished, all the heights he's climbed, he deserves some special treatment, even from Israel's God. That's what happens when self-reliant people attain success. Don't we all know it? It's called pride. And together with self-reliance, it's got to be empty because Naaman cannot be close to God, the only one that can really save him, as long as those qualities are defining his identity. That's Naaman's hidden cancer. God's going to treat it as well. God loves Naaman way too much to ignore that. What happens next is the emptying procedure. First, Naaman gets snubbed. Look at verse 10. We read that Elijah refuses personal contact with him. We can assume that that decision on Elijah's part is a directive from God because Elijah is normally more hands-on in his work. If you read chapter 4, he's very hands-on, but not this time. He keeps at a distance. Old Testament scholar Ian Proven explains that if the prophet Elijah had been personally involved, if he'd gone out and kowtowed before Naaman, Naaman would have been at risk of thinking that his healing and salvation could still be found in this world. 
a world in which someone like Naaman exercised tremendous power and authority. And that would simply reinforce his self-reliance, which in turn cuts him off from the only one who can really save him. See, biblically speaking, to be self-reliant is to regard yourself as God. And that makes it quite difficult to know the true God. It's a crippling delusion. Now, the importance of Elijah's hands-off strategy cannot be understated. If you look at verse 13, get another little periscope into Naaman's heart. But his servants came to him and said, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Naaman likes to do great things. And so his servants are pandering to his ego. Look, how he, it, he did tell you to do something great. Going to bathe in the river is a great thing. One insightful old preacher, C.H. Spurgeon, concludes that Naaman wants to have a hand in his cure. He wants to have some satisfaction in taking care of himself. We know about that, don't we? Therefore, he's underwhelmed by Elijah's prescription. It's something that's not going to allow him to take any credit or get any glory. Naaman's a doer. He wants to have a hand in his salvation. That's why he's angry and irate in verse 11, which the Hebrew language suggests. He's basically been told, you'll be made well, but you're not going to be part of the solution and no special treatment for you. And in his anger about this, Naaman is battling a deep inner resistance towards unqualified dependence on somebody besides himself. So intense, he almost walks away from the chance of getting cured. How's that for pride? I've been there before. Have you? It really is nasty. Naaman's pride and self-reliance have to be emptied, stripped away. Salvation lies there and there only. That's what Elijah's odd course of action is meant to do. All of this makes me think of a, of a verse from Psalm 32. The Lord will instruct you and he will teach you the way. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed, for I will not be near you. Psalm 32. God wants to be near Naaman, but unless Naaman is emptied, that cannot happen. Now, what can we say about this emptying that is a prelude to, to real connection with the real God? It's about despairing the world. Naaman's got to see that there are certain problems in his life and in the world which nothing in the world can resolve. The words of the king of Israel in verse 7 must become his own words. Am I a God to kill and heal? No. No, I'm not. Naaman's got to be broken. All of us have to see that there are some problems so great that none of us can deal with them. No human can pay certain prices. This emptying, as we've seen, begins with a snub in verse 11, and it finishes when Naaman grudgingly goes down to the river of Israel in verse 14. He's received that exhortation from his servants not to storm off in anger, and it, spurs, it serves to spur just enough humility to prevent him from cutting off his nose despite his face. You need to see that for Naaman, going to the river Jordan in Israel to wash is a huge slice of humble pie. Naaman's the military commandant of Syria, Israel's greatest rival at this time. And at this particular moment in the narrative of kings, Syria's got the upper hand. So Naaman's being told to publicly wash in the land of the enemies that he has been disgracing in battle up to this point. Be a bit like a U.S. president 
having to go over to the Soviet Union during the Cold War to get a medical procedure. It's humbling, but it brings blessing. For with God, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And so it is. Just as winter gives way to spring, so too does emptying make room for filling. Look with me, stare with me now at verses 14 and 15. So he went down and he dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. And then he returned to that man of God, he and all of his company, and he came and he stood before him and he said, Behold, I know now there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. Now, according to verse 12, Naaman's really peeved that he had to travel to Israel just to wash in their river. He's got better rivers in his own country. For someone like Naaman, everything in Syria is always going to be better. But this and only this river is the one with power because this is the river that God has chosen and God is the one working, not Naaman. There's one river that will heal because there is one God that can heal. And that God suffers no rivals, including Naaman's ego. Yeah, this is a God who yearns to bless and restore. That's the significance of the seven depths that Naaman makes in that river. In the scripture, as some of you will know, the number seven is associated with blessing and the goodness of creation. It's about shalom. It's about things working like they're supposed to work, our bodies, relationships. You get a taste of that in Genesis 1 and 2, but then it all gets shattered in Genesis 3 when humanity falls away from God out of self-reliance in pride. According to the Bible, that shattering is the root cause of everything that is spoiled in this world, which is precisely why God, when he moves to heal and save Naaman, doesn't just deal with the skin affliction. It's God's way of saying, I can do so much more for you. In fact, I have so much more for you. We Vancouverites can appreciate this quality of God. He is a practitioner of holistic medicine, concerned with both body and soul. That's the God of the Bible. Friends, in these events, God is dealing with the more systemic problem of what we would call sin in Naaman in its original and familiar form of self-reliance and pride. Those things have to be driven out. Naaman's got to realize that the greatest deed that he can do is to simply admit that there are deeds he can't do, problems he can't fix. He's got to come to see that before God, all we need is need. All we need is nothing. Now we can dance. Through all of this, God is making Naaman into a living monument of God's power. Naaman goes into the water leprous. He rises out with baby skin. He goes in emptied of himself and his ego, and he emerges filled with the Spirit as a man converted, one who now knows that dependence on God is much better than the alternative. That's verse 15. He says, there is no God but this one. According to the New Testament, a person cannot recognize God like that with integrity unless the Spirit of God has done something in them. And for this very reason, Christians have long, long seen Naaman's washing in the river, this Old Testament story, as a precursor to baptism. It's an event that marks being born again, waking up with joy to the reality of the true God. By the way, we can be sure that any displeasure Naaman experienced in being emptied has now been long forgotten. 
in the profession, in the declaration of verse 15, things come full circle in this story. And this is something that's often missed, but it's incredible, so perk up your ears for this one. This is my greatest exegetical discovery this week. Look back at verse 3. You see the word cure that's used there? Guess what? That is not the normal expected word for cure in Hebrew. The normal word for cure for healing is rapha. This is not that word. It's another one. I won't pronounce it because I can't do it properly. It's a word that catches you off guard if you read this passage in Hebrew. It's a word that literally means to gather. So the little girl is basically saying, go to Israel, Naaman. There's a prophet there who will gather you. Now, what does that strange speech act mean? It actually makes perfect sense in light of how the story ends. Naaman doesn't simply receive a a remedy for his skin malady. He gets brought into God's family. He gets gathered into the people of God. That's the ultimate cure. That's the only place where we encounter blessing and power and help that will, in the end, be greater than everything which spoils our lives. For the same Spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ is at work in those who call Him Lord. We see it right here in Naaman, overcoming the death in his body. That's the substance of hope in God. Naaman got it. Do you know it? Do we know it? God wants us to know it. God wants to give it. That is God's great pleasure. And it is the only path to security and gladness in a world of chances and changes where there will always be some form of leprosy in our lives. You see, our lot is with Naaman. Like him, there are going to be things that spoil us. It may be happening for some of you right now. Something like that happened for me about 10 days ago. But like Naaman, they don't have to have the final word. You see, there's a little girl that orients us as well, that points to healing and salvation. Healing and salvation that will sometimes be present, but that will always be in the future. A little girl that beckons us to be gathered into the family of God, except this, this isn't just a word she speaks, it's a word she carried. Our little girl is called Mary. She too was familiar with hardship, like the slave girl in verse 2. And the New Testament tells us that she carried God's word in her womb for nine long months. That's one of the things we remember in this season of Advent. And when God's word inside Mary was born, she called him Jesus. That means God saves. And Jesus grew into a great prophet, much greater than Elisha, because Jesus wasn't just a prophet of God. He was God as prophet, God himself. And for us, he's not a prophet we have to go and find. We don't have to travel to find him like Naaman had to travel to find Elijah. You see, Jesus comes to us now, for in him we witness God himself journeying into a far-off land to seek and save that which is lost. And just as Christ once filled Mary, so now will he fill all who look to him as Savior. Today, at this moment, I am his witness. The only thing you need is need. Can you let go? Can you let go to be caught by the only one who can spoil the things that otherwise spoil our lives? It's time to get well.